are still in Oscar season. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, we should plug ourselves. Yes. On uh, Sunday the 25th, anybody who's in Los Angeles, uh, Sunday the 25th, we will be with the rest of the Film Week, the KPCC Film Week review crew and Larry Mantle at the Ace Theater, connected to the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, that I think starts at noon, or do we just have to be there? At we ar we arrive at noon. I think it gets going about one or so. Yeah, it's the big about one. show. So it's a it's a big deal. So uh, you can go online and get uh, information for that. If you go to the Ace Theater website, I don't even know. They haven't even told us what the uh, the website is for tickets. Uh, but if you want to if you want to you know waste a Sunday afternoon watching Tim and me <laughs> and all of our film week colleagues up there on stage arguing about the Academy Awards as we do every year, uh, that will happen on uh, February twenty fifth. And it's a good time. The Ace Theater is a fun old, oh, yeah, fun it's old a theater. Beautiful uh, old United Artists Theater. Yeah, uh, Charlie That's Chaplin. That's right. Built by built yeah. by Charlie Chaplin and uh, and the rest of the. It's uh, never been renovated. Uh, it's never lovely, needed but it never needed to be renovated because it's never been out of use. Although last it, last year uh, there were there was it wasn't there a little leak from the roof <laughs> that was dripping <laughs> it was on like literally. it was dripping on Christie's head. Uh, uh, that was kind of funny. Uh, it was a rainy day, and there was there was a, a I guess a minuscule pin leak somewhere in the ceiling, and uh, it plopped on poor Christie Lemire's head. Uh, <laughs> made for a funny moment. So anyway, that's on February twenty uh, fifth, the Sunday before the Oscars, one week before the Oscars, yep. which are on. Uh, March 4th and uh, then that show of course goes up on the radio the uh, on uh, Friday the 2nd so uh, anyway yeah. it'll be a good time good time had by all uh, I'm going to start off we've got a bunch of anime I'm going to roll through this little pile of anime here and uh, for anime fans let you know what's uh, up on the docket this month anime continues to be one of the one of the few genres that really has not been in any significant way dented by Netflix or streaming or anything it's yeah. just it's a it's a super Super loyal following, and it's a world unto itself. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of companies like Viz and Funimation and Section Twenty Three, which handles all of the uh, the various you know like Made in Japan and Sente libraries. These guys they 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 knock it out of the park constantly, and they got a lot of stuff. And it's a huge industry in Japan. So um, here we have an interesting release from uh, this is from Sente uh, by Section Twenty Three, but it's uh, it's Warner Brothers branded. At the same time, and uh, it is Food Wars, the second plate. Utterly bizarre, some of the stuff they come up with. Uh, this is, uh, you know, food is a big deal in a, in a lot of countries, in a lot of, in a lot of places. France and Japan, yeah. perhaps foremost among them. Italy, I think we could say as well. Those are major food uh, societies. And, um, you know, Iron Chef and all that stuff. You, you understand the Japanese, they are very, very serious about their food. There are sushi restaurants where you would have to mortgage your house just to get one dish of, yeah. you know, it's, it's an art form. Anyway, um, so we have a, an utterly, they, we have a, com a thing here. Food Wars basically combines the Japanese obsession with doing animated shows about the politics of high school with cooking. Mm. So this is all take, takes place in uh, Totsuki Academy. And uh, it's basically, you know, school politics about becoming a master chef. And it is kind of weird, um, but, in, but strangely enjoyable. I could see this actually becoming more of a, um, a video game than anything else. Anyway, it's well animated. Curious storytelling, uh, how they get the drama out of it. Didn't quite connect to any of the characters, but I found it interesting nonetheless. And uh, then we also have from the wonderful people over at Viz, uh, Terraformars. That's all one word, T-E-R-R-A-F-O-R-M-A-R-S, Terraformars. Really tremendous artwork. Uh, this, is, um, this is the season one of this, and it is, uh, it is really quite an impressive science fiction thing. The... Um, uh, the idea here is that the Earth is um, consumed by a virus, and everyone is on, on Earth is dying, and the only way that we can survive is to um, take this one group of people who've been genetically modified to be able to live on Mars. 
and turn Mars into our new home. And it's uh, it's kind of a whole colonization drama and saga, and it's it's really creative. It goes in some bizarre directions you just would never expect it to go. And yet it all makes sense in a, in a, when it kind of comes back around to the end. Um, I am curious to see where this goes. This is 13 episodes uh, from this first season, and uh, it includes a lot of uh, interesting art gallery stuff. Really, really, really interesting uh, artwork. Uh, it's just some of the most interesting anime I've seen in a long, long yeah. time. Napping Princess... I thought might have gotten an Oscar nomination last year. This is from Shout Factory and G-Kids. Uh, this came out earlier last year. I covered this on Film Week as well. Uh, this is just a, a really, really wonderful story. It takes place in the very, very near future, 2020, um, right on the eve of the Tokyo Olympics. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a, a walk through this girl's imagination. And um, she's, you know, this, she's sort of like this inventor girl. And... Um, then there is a very weird kind of Alice in Wonderlandy adventure that transpires um, after you know her father is kidnapped, and it it just it goes into this also goes into some very interesting kind of weird directions. Um, interesting commentary on the current world, on our technology, on our business culture. All these things really factor into it, especially as they pertain to Japanese culture. But Napping Princess um, did not get an Oscar nomination, kind of fell out of the conversation at a certain point. But I still think it's a really fine film, really well written, very interesting, um, quite a, quite a non-anime-like anime film. And uh, similarly, uh, Typhoon Noruda, N-O-R-U-D-A. Uh, this is also Sente and Section 23. Um, this uses the concept of a typhoon as the instigating incident to examine some really interesting character politics. And um, this is about a bunch of bunch of people on a remote island and who are trapped there by the typhoon, and uh, how the typhoon passing over affects their relationships and the ways to work together. And uh, this also is 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 really quite a quite a sharp film. Yeah. Uh, typhoon Noruda, T Y P H O O N, as opposed to the T Y F spelling of it, Noruda. And uh, another interesting one, which gets again into their obsession with school politics, Tanaka Kun is always listless. Who would put the word listless in a title? Mm, Japanese. Japanese. Uh, I'm assuming that's the translation of some kind anyway. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, this is just about a guy who basically daydreams in school, and uh, they use that as a, a launching point to uh, develop this uh, interesting relationship that he's got with this, this giant uh, and the, it, it starts to feel a little bit Big Hero 6-ish at a certain point. Um, but again, I, you know, it's it's not a science fiction thing. It's not a fantasy thing per se. Uh, it's not, at least not conventionally so. So it... Um, it's you know it's a uh, it's kind of a, it's a nice diversion. It's nice. It differs from what we usually get on the uh, on the really hyperactive you know anime stuff that requires volumes and volumes to just familiarize yourself with what's going on. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, then we've also got Berserk season one. Uh, Berserk is uh, all about the Black Swordsman, who is kind of a traditional um, Ronin type character. Um, except this time he's fighting demons and um, has this really cool sword called the Dragon Slayer. And it's uh, it's just straight up great uh, adventure animation. Really, really fun stuff. Uh, I, it's really well animated, really intensely detailed uh, drawing and uh, Berserk Season 1. Looking forward to getting, uh, getting some interesting uh, follow-ups to that. Sub subsequent seasons are going to have some really interesting places to go. We've also got Cabaneri of the Iron Fortress, complete series. Uh, this is basically a zombie story, uh, but you know you're watching it again for the animation, the artwork, which is just tremendous. Really, really strong animation, and uh, everybody's kind of now living in these fortresses, and they're all connected by trains, and it's, you know th that's sort of the the uh, the future punk scenario that is supposed to make this zombie story a little bit different. Um, it kind of does. I don't I don't think the story is all that interesting, but I think the uh, the animation makes up for it. So if you ever saw the uh, British television series called My Partner the Ghost, it was called something else in the UK. Over here it was known as My Partner the Ghost. 
It's about a guy who, you know, a cop who and his partner dies and then his partner comes back as a ghost and is still his partner. <laughs> uh, cute, cute premise. Uh, Tim's laughing over here. It's, <laughs> it's, it, I like it's it. It's basically like Blythe Spirit, except yeah. it's a it's a cop show. Um, um, and the British show was, you know, the names of the two cops. Anyway, uh, that's a little bit what the Morose Mononokian is, the complete series of the Blu-ray DVD combo set. And um, it's except in this case, it's not a it's a guy who has kind of a, a spirit um, guardian angel figure. And uh, and and. Uh, there's a possession story. It's all very kind of rooted in a very strange uh, set of of Japanese mythology that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're familiar with that mythology and a lot of the stuff in it. Uh, so I'm not. <laughs> so it was. No. <laughs> it was. It was a. It was a little confusing and hard to get into. Um, it, they say it's a comedy. I'm not quite sure what uh, you know. They call it a yokai comedy because the yokai, which is a mystical ghost thing. Anyway, I, I did. I really didn't make a. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really know what's going on here. So it's very hard to follow. But again, uh, interesting artwork has kind of a watercolory look to it. Nice watercolory palette. So that was all right. Uh, Ace Attorney. Yeah. Um, Ace Attorney, part one. Um, yeah, okay, so <laughs> here's the thing. Um, I, legal dramas, you know, I can, I can get with when they're live action. Um, but legal, legal anime is <laughs> just bizarre. I, this apparently is really, really popular, and uh, uh, it's kind of slapsticky and a little bit over the top. I think if you're really, really hardcore into anime, you'll you'll enjoy this. Ace Attorney, uh, it's 13 episodes. Uh, I don't really know what justice system it is being depicted here. It doesn't resemble ours, and I can't imagine it resembles the, the justice system in Japan either. So I have to imagine that they're kind of making up, making this up as they go along, and... Uh, you know, it's like it's like a, an animated Perry Mason with uh, younger and better looking people and occasionally really weird slapsticky outbursts. But anyway, Ace Attorney, there yeah. it is. And then the last two, uh, Time Travel Girl, uh, Marian Waka. This is, I want to like this more than I probably do. Uh, this is based on a, a manga series, as I understand it. And it's, um, it's all about a girl and her friend who come across a book that enables them to time travel. And it's a book that was, you know, once belonged to her father. And there's all kinds of mystical kind of uh, never-ending story type stuff in here. And then it becomes a little bit Nancy Drewish at a certain point, And then it becomes a little bit, you know, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure-ish. And it kind of mixes and matches a lot of different genres here and... Um, you wind up with a lot of famous people showing up here, and that's kind of cute in a Bill and Ted way, you know, like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Edison. Um, or, and, and I would even say it sometimes even feels like Quantum Leap yeah. a little bit. So it sort of uh, it sort of crosses all of that stuff. Um, but you know what? I it it it's it's educational, and uh, it still you know skews a little older than my daughter would, but to enjoy it. But it's fine. Perfectly fine. And then lastly, uh, Yamada-kun and the Seven Witches, the complete series. These are the cutest little multicolor-haired witches you have ever seen in your life. Uh, once again, we're back into high school politics, and it all takes place in Suzaku High School. And, uh, you know, I, I guess um, Serena, the te- Serena the Teenage Witch? Who's the Teenage Witch? Oh, uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Sabrina. Sabrina the Teenage Witch, right? Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. It's like Sabrina times seven. Uh, that's what it is. Anyway, uh, look, uh, the, the whole idea of teenage witchery and teen, teens having superpowers and all that, it's, it's perfectly fine and it's cute and it's adorable. And, uh, we of course have had, uh, what was the, uh, what was the TV show, uh, with Rose McGowan and the other two? Oh, uh, Charmed. Charmed. We got a lot of charm. Yeah. So, yeah, this feels a little bit more like that. Um, it's cute. It's cute and enjoyable, and uh, I think it's uh, it's perfectly passable. And it didn't require me to read volumes of backstory to figure out what universe this inhabits. Is 
you know, things like Gundam often do, which I just, you know, the, yeah. the world of Gundam and all these other it's universes, it's just, it, it's just so huge and there's so much going on. But anyway, so there it is. That's our anime this week. Um, and I'm sure we'll have more in a couple of weeks because that wanna, stuff just comes out fast and furious. You want to do some uh, new movies? New movies for yeah, a second got a, here? Got a few uh, new movies. Uh, uh, Wonder. Uh, which is a movie that I think we thought, or some people thought, that we might have been talking about around and about this time of the year. You know, Jacob it, it, Tremblay. You know, people were surprised that they liked this. I remember uh, at the time, I did not see it, but I remember a lot I of saw, people. I saw it for the show. And and were you Did you like it? It drove me a little crazy, actually. Yeah. It drove me a little bit crazy, particularly the construction of it. It's it's broken into these sort of sequences that focus on uh, several different characters. The way the trailer looks, it looks like we're just sort of like watching the life right. of this kid. But no, we sort of wander into the sort of specific uh, pers- uh, perspectives of various characters. Some of the str- stories are stronger than others. This is a movie about this yeah. kid that has this sort of facial deformity. Jacob Tremblay from Jacob Room. Jacob Tremblay from Room. And, yeah, and the makeup is good. Um uh, very clever, this makeup that they've done. So he has this facial deformity, but they've done this makeup in such a way that while he is, in fact, uh, deformed, he is still cute. All right. uh, which is a deliberate thing, of course. The makeup is put on his face. Uh, yeah. uh, and in, in the same way... Uh, that you design a toy or something like that, right. and you don't want it to scare the crap out. You know, it's a little monster <laughs> toy, little monster toys yeah. or whatever. But the monsters still have to, in some way, be cute. And they managed to pull that off with this. And I don't know. That was a, that was an interesting thing. Mm. The movie itself is fairly ir- irritating. Owen Wilson, particularly. O- Owen Wilson is playing this dad, right? He's the dad, sure. right? This is his entire performance in this movie. Is every now and then again uh, he'll put his hands in his pockets and say your mom's not going to like that, and then he'll look, <laughs> and then he'll look over there at Julia Roberts. And just stand there with his hands in his pockets and let her and let her. That's his whole. That's his whole thing in this movie. Gosh. In any case, uh, it, it, here here it is. Yeah, all kinds of stuff on this movie. Seven featurettes. The whole shebang. It's completely, re, it's completely insane. The Silence of the Lambs. Criterion, baby. Yeah, Jonathan Demme, uh, the late Jonathan Jonathan Demme. Uh, I this guess has I been out say. so many times. Yeah, uh, I must have six. Versions yeah, of this. and uh, I think everybody kind of you know when Criterion comes out with something, you just kind of want to rest and say, finally, there we go, that's the last. Well, one. it's yeah. a new 4K digital restoration. The whole and you know, Criterion released a DVD of this many, many, many uh, years ago, and then they lost the license. Obviously, MGM to you know snatched oh, yeah. it back, and it became you know a, a whole series of other DVDs. And I think then it was on Blu-ray a couple of times, and they had you know the Hannibal Lecter collection, and they. Put them all anyway. All, yeah, with all the other movies. So Criterion finally was able to uh, convince somebody to give them a license again, and uh, and it's it's great. Well, I don't know if any of the other ones have this audio commentary. This 1994 audio. That's com- the they, ori- that, that they do. That, that was the original one. They get to use it again. Yeah. Yeah. So this is fantastic. Uh, in yeah. terms of that alone, this movie, uh, 1999, one, I did the junket for this movie. It's like a press conference thing that they had with Jody yeah. and Thomas uh, Harris was there, and and Jonathan Demme was there. And we had this really, really sort of interesting conversation. Uh, the the other books don't stand up nearly as strong, no, uh, as in that television series out there too. Yeah. But if you want to see that, I read it's that book. That's back when I used to read everything. Yeah, this movie and that book walked along together hand in hand, very, very nicely. Uh, the Ballad of Lefty Brown. Uh, this also got no Oscar love, and I I, I like that movie. I did too. You know, Lionsgate. It's funny, Lionsgate. I, I can't quite figure out their their Oscar strategy. They they seem to not really want to invest a whole lot. And Crash. I thought when Crash won, that was such a huge deal in two thousand five. Yeah. I, I thought, wow, there you go. And Lionsgate really kind of pulls their punches every year. They did it this year with a whole bunch of films, including. Um, their finest, which is still one of my favorite films yep. of the year, and I thought that should have been in the mix. And you know what happened with their finest? Yeah. Here's my read on it after talking to a number of people because I called, and Alonzo called and said, "Why are you not promoting their finest? Where is our screener of their finest? Why are we not getting any phone calls and emails saying put their finest at the front of your screener list? You know, you need to sort of rattle people, particularly to... since this was a year with Dunkirk and yeah. uh, the, the, the and uh, Darkest, the Hour. Darkest Hour, both you know, of which are nominated for Best yeah. Picture. So you, you toss this out just if you're going to skate on it's, that a little bit, it, it, and it's better than both of those. Yeah, you know, and their finest. Here's the deal: it was financed by BBC Films, and apparently Lionsgate. This is my understanding. Lionsgate was of the feeling that, well, 
BBC Films should be paying for the awards campaign. Ah, for Christ and BBC man. Films was like, no, you're the American distributor. You should be paying for it. And everybody got into a little tiff over who's going to pay for the awards campaign. And you wind up with a movie that, that's been out for a number of months on Blu-ray that would be very easy to promote. Mm-hmm. And they just dropped the ball, and it, it got no Oscar nominations because nobody wanted to pay for the campaign. And this is a movie that, that, you know, is, uh, at least a couple of performances, yeah. possible nominations, yeah. maybe even a Best Picture nomination. For sure, Best Director, too. Uh, but, you know, yeah. Bill Nye, unequivocally, Best would have been great. Uh, what supporting actor, I guess Such it would have been. Anyway, that brings yeah. us to Ballad of Lefty Brown, another Lionsgate movie that they dropped the ball on. So there were some good westerns this year. Hostiles, Hostiles. my favorite film of the year. Yeah. I just, bar none, I loved Hostiles. And I also really like The Ballad of Lefty Brown, which features Bill Pullman in a great, crusty, old character part that we haven't seen him do before. And he basically, you know, this is a story of, this is a, it takes place in, you know, post-Civil War America. And um, we're at Montana, right? It's Montana? Yeah, yeah. And we're in Montana, and uh, he works, he's just the kind of the ranch hand for a guy who's, gonna, who's on his way to become a senator for the state of uh, Montana. Yeah, the newly formed state of Montana. And who is assassinated. Yeah. On his way there, out in the middle, boom, gun, rifle shot across the prairie. And uh, it, it throws a monkey wrench into everything. And he, he's just this alcoholic old stagehand or, or ranch hand who, who is kind of blamed for it because he should have been looking after him. And so he dedicates his life now to finding his boss's killer and yeah. sort of redeeming his reputation. Gets a couple of buddies, and, you know, it's, and they go out and they do the damn thing. They, it's, it's really great. Uh, Kathy Baker is still great. Uh, Jim Caviezel as the governor of Montana is is great. Uh, Peter Fonda in a brief performance as his boss. Uh, Bill Pullman, terrific. I mean, it's just beautifully done. I thought this was a really solid film. And uh, Jared Moshe, who directed it, does a great job. We'll have many other great films ahead of him. And uh, wonderful audio commentary with Pullman and Moshe. And it's a good film on Blu-ray and, uh, and digital copy. Ultraviolet still. Lionsgate has not migrated over to uh, movies anywhere, but shouldn't take long. Anyway, I, I thought it was terrific. Ballad solid of Lefty movie. Brown. Solid Ballad movie. of Lefty Brown. Uh, what? A solid Western. Uh, suburbia. Suburbia. Richard uh, Linklater. Yeah. It's sort of middle 90s film. When he was just sort of like, you know, beginning to sort of fill his way into his thing, he was kind of still doing that same thing, more or less. Slackery movies. thing. Slackery it's still part thing. of the slackery yeah, thing. You know, thing yeah. the, you know, the bunch of people hanging yeah. around town. Like, at post high school, quite have, haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah. What you get in the, what you get in this movie is uh, Eric Bro, Eric Bergosian wrote that play. As a matter of fact, it was that, that was adapted from one of, his, one of his plays. But what you get in this movie uh, are several young 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 actors of the day who went on to do some interesting things. So you get your Gio, Giovanni Rablisi, you get yeah. your Steve Zahn, uh, you know, you get your Nicky Cat. Uh, so you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a neat movie in that way. Looking back twenty years. And seeing who sort of floated their way up uh, through all of that, you know, uh, Parker Posey, of course, um, uh, Richard Linklater film. Not a whole lot on this. Uh, it's just the movie from, from Warner Brothers. Yeah, it's the it's Warner Archive uh, MOD deal. So uh, Romero and quasi Romero. So yeah. um, here's the deal. First, I'll make mention Day of the Dead Bloodline. Which is a Lionsgate film. Um, uh, Savini, if from, I'm not mistaken, right? No, this is Hector Hernandez. Vincenzo. Oh, that one. That this one. Is, yeah. yeah. This is a. This is based on Day of the Dead, the Romero film. This is Day of the Dead Bloodline, and it's you know new new zombie stuff, and every the zombies are just darker and meaner and angrier and drooler and bloodier faster. And Those are faster are and all that stuff. Uh, you know. Whatever. Uh, I uh, th- this makes an interesting contrast to. And, and by the way, this is uh, also an ultraviolet Blu-ray and ultraviolet combo set from Lionsgate. I, you watch this and all of its t- sophistication and all of its gore and all that stuff, and you just think, okay, fine, fair enough. And then you watch the new Criterion Blu-ray of the original Night of the Living Dead. From Black and white film, 1968. Black and white made uh, for no money by George Romero in 1968, a film in the middle of the exploitation era when yeah. it should have rightfully just vanished among a thousand other movies that were just almost the same. But it didn't, and for a lot of reasons. Now, here's the thing. The original Night of the Living Dead still scares the heebie-jeebies out of everybody, even though the zombies don't move quickly. Yeah. They are slow. They're real zombies, meaning they are dead people reanimated, not people who just got some virus or something, exactly. which is the thing. Yeah, they These come are, out of the ground. They come out of the ground. thing, yeah. 
And uh, it is incredibly well made for no money with no lighting. He uses the lack of budget to his to his uh, to great effect, like like the French did with the new wave films, like Godard did. When you know you see people looking in the camera, but you don't care because yeah. he's following Belmondo down the street. And and because also I think the importance of it is Night of the Living Dead isn't just a zombie movie. It's about something else. Mm-hmm. And it's about society in 1968. It is about the way society is changing. It is about uh, Vietnam. It is about race. Mm-hmm. It is about politics. It is about uh, Johnson and Nixon. It is about all of these things that were in the zeitgeist in 1968 that nobody quite knew how to express. Nobody knew how to sort of grasp with these changes and is it good and is it bad and what kind of society are we becoming? And it, it, nobody quite knew how to wrap their arms around this. And then George Romero comes around and says, here's how I'm doing it. I'm making a zombie movie. And between the cracks, between all these building blocks, you, you kind of do start to, to understand in a, much, in a very simplified, metaphorical way yeah. um, the way the society is changing. And it's a really, really smart film, even today. Uh, if you watch it, given that historical context. Not the very casting of the Wayne Jones yep. brother. Big time. In that part, in that yeah, not long after the assassination. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, there you go. It's, it yeah. is. It's a, it's a terrific film. Tons and tons of extras on uh, with this uh, 4K digital restoration. Uh, it is, of course, a Blu-ray, so it's basically 2K, but a 4K restoration uh, and uh, lots and lots of stuff on here, including a new thing with Frank Darabont, Guillermo del Toro, and Robert Rodriguez. Um, 16 millimeter dailies. On here, which is really kind of fun to look at, and uh, archival interviews with uh, Romero and Dwayne Jones and Judith Ridley. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting there. And then uh, a new interview with the uh, about the the way the you know the ghouls were directed and how they were told to move and all that stuff. Really, really great. And then some 1967 newsreels, trailers, TV spots, uh, lots of stuff. Uh, you know, Night of the Anubis, uh, never before presented work print of the film. It's really great. You know what Everything I was thinking here. of when I said Tom Savini. One of the, it, it might be the first junket that I ever did, 1990, mm-hmm. remake of The Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. That was directed by Tom Savini, literally a oh, remake. Oh, that's right. It was. Tony You're Todd. Right. You're right. Uh, and all that. And I did the junket right. for that film. And I interviewed. Uh, Romero uh, gave that his blessing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, he gave that his blessing. Tony Todd is extraordinary in that film, as is, I think her name was Patricia Tramwell or something like that. Yeah. A young woman who played the. Sure. Uh, the same yep. part. And it was contemporary to the day, so it was it was a film set in 1990. Yep. But as good as it was, as well made as it was, obviously bigger budget, you know, good filmmaking. Tom Savini knows what he's doing, uh, both in terms of the character, uh, the, the zombies, and the Tony Todd, an extraordinary actor. Yep. It was a really, really good film. It could not possibly resonate in 1990 the way the other film did True. in 1968 68. because the zeitgeist was Changed. the thing. Yep. You're right. You know, that was yeah. just, it was, it was good. Just, just, it didn't work that way. Uh, Blake Edwards, The Pink Panther, Cartoon Collection, Volume 1, 1964 to 1966. Thank I loved uh, this cartoon cartoons. Uh, they, they were the, the exact opposite of everything else that was happening in cartoons, then. Uh, all the Warner Brothers, Disney, yeah. for that matter, all the wackiness falling down, yeah. uh, all the manic, this, the daffy yeah. duck, and all of that. You had the, then you had The Pink Panther. Yeah, with that Henry Mancini, that music, that yeah. groovy music, and he's just he's just so cool, and he's making <laughs> cocktails, and yeah. you know, and people are doing all kinds of wacky stuff, but he's just sort of standing yeah. there being the Pink Panther. It's cool, and it was you know, and so it was really, really, really neat. Watch this not only for the cartoons, but for that Henry Mancini. Oh, the music—that's what's so here. Good. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah, I can't wait for them to get all those cartoons. I've been waiting for that because all the movies are on Blu-ray now. Yeah. All the movies, including you know the Benini movie and all the other stuff, but they the the cartoons are just starting to arrive, and that's the only you know there was a giant Pink Panther box set some years ago, like plush fabric box set that had, <laughs> which I still have that has all the movies and all the cartoons and everything, and you know now I, now I don't have to worry about hanging on to that thing too much longer. Everything gets gets to Blu-ray. Uh, got a couple of little things here on DVD from Mill Creek, uh, worth mentioning. They're, they're, they're TV movies that sort of fell between the cracks uh, not too long ago, but they are. it's nice that they're getting resurrected and Mill Creek's bringing them out. Carol Burnett and George Siegel, both wonderful in Seasons of the Heart. Oh, wow. 
Forgot how wonderful she was in that. Isn't that great? You know, that was that was her first sort of big sort of dramatic kind of thing that yeah. she did. Yeah. Yeah. They're really, really sweet. Uh, you know, it's just it's family drama, and she's a she's a, you know a, a, a publishing executive. Carol Burnett is here, and um, it's it's a, essentially she essentially she inherits her grandson. I hate to say inherit. She receives custody of her grandson after her daughter you know is a, yeah. has drug problems and. Uh, it's it's really it's it's just such a sad situation and uh, and I know situations that are almost analogous. Well, to this. The, the reason why it was so poignant at the time is because Carol, uh, whose da- her daughter, yeah, was going through some of the With same sort of similar stuff, at the time. and, and yeah. it was all sort of in the news, and, and it was a big deal for her to sort of like take that on. At it the was time. Yeah. it was a big deal, and it was really it's a it's a beautiful beautiful movie. It's really worth worth discovering. Seasons of the Heart, uh, Carol Burnett and George Siegel are both absolutely wonderful in it. And then uh, another really good, solid family drama based in fact, uh, but a very, very different story, is A Sudden Fury, A Family Torn Apart, with an unbelievably young Neil Patrick Harris and a terribly young Johnny Galecki in it. I remember that movie. Uh, That's that movie. Yeah, terribly young indeed. Uh, When you look at Johnny Galecki and, and, and recall that he was like, you know, whatever in that movie, and then yeah. you think about him playing a teenager in The Big Bang Theory yeah. 20 years later. Right. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, right. That was sort of, it wasn't the the Menendez brothers. Well, it, yes. But it was a bitey kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Menendez-ish. Menendez-ish. Two, two brothers that murder their parents. And yes, it, it, uh, it was not very specifically said that this was about the Menendez, but... Uh, and there are other stories that are analogous to this as well that are, that you know that, that it could also have been based in part yeah. on. So uh, really, really interesting and gets and and it's not what's interesting about it is it's not just about the issue of uh, these guys killing their parents. It's about the abuse they suffered that mm-hmm. presumably led them to kill their parents and is that justifiable? And that's a really interesting idea and uh, that's where that film goes and and I give them all the credit for in the world for doing that. Uh, should we get a little campy over yeah, here? Yeah, why not? <laughs> I guess that's what this is. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Yes! <gasps> oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. 1978, uh, this thing was. Now, you you again, know I actually saw this in theaters in 78. Talk about zeitgeist. Yeah. If this had been not made in 1978, if this were made today, nobody would care. Nobody. This, would, they'd be like, why didn't you put it on YouTube? Uh, it, well, you know, well, it, I, what is this akin to uh, the the Sharknado movies that I sure. that I this is sure. this, this is there, right? It was the so, Sharknado of its day. And so it would it, sure. it would live on it would live on whatever that Absolutely. would be. Absolutely. And this kind of thing. Anyway, this movie is it just goes on and on and on and on. Special features is what you want to get this for. It's just packed. Totally. Uh, with everything you can possibly think of uh, on, on a newly remastered 4K digital transfer, too. So there's that. Look, you know what I love about this movie? It's the, it's the 100% practical special effects. Uh, you know, gigantic, yep. you know, little people in tomato ball shaped things rolling around and other gadgets and stuff. You know, and people pulling stuff on, th- people throwing stuff from off screen. That's the way they made this movie. They abused the actors by throwing crap at them. Yep. Uh, as opposed to making them stand in front of a green and or blue screen like they did back today. Special Collector's Edition attack, uh, attack of the Killer Tremendos. Uh From Arrow video comes the gruesome twosome. Now, Here's what you have to understand. Uh, the Gruesome Twosome is a Herschel Gordon-Lewis movie. It is one of his gore films, yeah. kind of one of his gore films, that, 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 that it's not like Blood Feast. Uh, it, this, is, this is campier. Now, if you've seen the documentary that, that Tim and I were a part of, that Ray Green made, uh, Schlock, Secret History of American Movies, mm-hmm. from long, way too long ago, um, we touch a lot on Herschel Gordon-Lewis. We, we really do. And, and he made Nudie Cuties before that. So he had a sense of camp. He had a sense of a, a mischievous sense of camp. And this is one of them. This is basically about a woman who runs a wig shop and her son going around scalping people so they can make wigs out of their scalps. Yeah. That is literally what this movie is about. It's called The Gruesome Twosome, and it is gory. It is also silly. It is ridiculous, and it comes with tons of extras, including another Herschel Gordon-Lewis movie called A Taste of Blood, which is a vampire thing, which is so bad that they just figured, throw it on as an extra. Why? No one's going to buy it separately. So um, go ahead. Uh, you get it all. Uh, so there's tons of other stuff on here. Uh, archival co- uh, audio commentaries for both films by Herschel Gordon Lewis. Um, 
and it's just it's you know I I'm not going to recommend this if you're not a Lewis completist. <laughs> There's just no point. But if you are, it's certainly worth checking out. And Arrow does a, a lovely job. The transfer is very very solid. Uh, aftermath. Uh, what comes after World War Three? That was a hell of a tag tagline. Actually, kind of <laughs> big that. What comes after World War Three? Um, this is one of those uh, sort of I don't know middle early eighties actually. I guess it is films uh, set in a sort of uh, uh, you know, apocalyptic world. Uh, a spaceship returns to from space to find that the Earth has been uh, yeah. hit by a nuke and all that kind of. You know, look, these films were a lot of fun back in the day. They were all aping to one extent or another the, the films that sort of came along post Star Wars. Yep. Uh, and uh, they were you know, sort of high tech, high technology films set ever so slightly in the future and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, it's one of those kind of things. Uh, a lot of action, a lot of wacky. It's it's actually a kid movie to a certain extent. Lynn Margulis is in this movie. As it happens, I know her mm-hmm and we've got a whole bunch from uh, Kino this week some some really cool titles from Kino the first is from the redemption line uh, and it is called the diabolical dr. Z now this is a Jess Franco film which usually means crap yeah because Jess Franco makes crappy movies uh, it's more interesting than your usual Jess Franco film and for that I give credit to Jean-Claude Carrière who co-wrote the screenplay ah. now if you read my piece on the greatest screenwriters of all time who were not included in that no, New no, York no, magazine yeah, piece yeah. that's up at uh, Cine Gods, um, my right at the top, Beneath Robert Bolt, I include Jean-Claude Carrière. Mm -hmm. Jean-Claude Carrière is one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. He's like 83 now. He's still going strong. Wrote a lot of stuff for Bunuel. He, he wrote Valmont for Milos Forman. Mm -hmm. He wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being for Phil Kaufman. He's amazing. Okay, Jean-Claude Carrière is a genius. And what he did here was he whipped uh, this script into shape for Jess Franco and gave him probably the best piece of material he's ever had in his entire life. Um, it is a mad scientist movie. It is very much in the vein of uh, Georges Pranjou's Eyes Without a Face. It's very much in that. It's beautiful black and white photography, and uh, you you get you get some of that in the audio commentary here. The, uh, the guy who wrote Obsession, the films of Jess Franco, Tim Lucas, mm. is the commentarian here. Um, really, pretty much that in the trailer, like the only uh, the only extras here. But um, the story is a little bit silly in some respects, as from a premise standpoint. Uh, you know, you've got this like there's, there's like a mind control thing and a mad scientist, and it it it, 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 it it's a and there the the revenge angle is very Jess Franco. However, um, it's really interesting what you can see what Carrier did to it. He really tried to deepen the characters and kind of make the relationships a little bit more than just you know generic uh, slasher horror film stuff. And uh, it's it, it it winds up being pretty much the best Jess Franco film I think ever made, thanks to Jean Claude Carrière. So that is the diabolical Doctor Z. Um, we also have some others that uh, have been mined from studio vaults, uh, and uh, Kino has the licenses. One of them is Baby's Secret of the Lost Legend with William Cat, who we talked yes. about last week yep. of Greatest American Hero, along with Sean Young and Patrick McGowan. And uh, what I remember most about this is, apart from being a silly movie with about people who discover an, a, an animatronic uh, baby dinosaur, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, a baby dinosaur. <laughs> we know it's animatronic. They don't know it's animatronic. It's not. It's not animatronic in the movie. I'm just being silly. But um, yeah, you know, when William Cat and Sean Young, look, it's a baby dinosaur. If I saw a baby dinosaur, I wouldn't run up and go, "Oh, this is a cute little here, little noogie." I'd freak out. Yeah. I would run. I'd call the FBI. And I'd say, uh, save us from this horrible thing. What the hell it's going to grow going up and on? become uh, some kind of freaking monster. Anyway, uh, so Baby Secret of Lost Legend is interesting for one, well, two significant reasons. One, I think it was originally supposed to be directed by Roger Spottiswood, oh. who wound up just producing it. Um, but here's what makes this interesting. One, it has a Jerry Goldsmith score, which mm. is really good. Mm -hmm. It's a really good Jerry Goldsmith score. And number two... The director of photography was the great, the amazing, the extraordinary John Alcott, primarily uh, primarily yeah. known for you know obviously shooting Stanley Kubrick's uh, Barry Lyndon, but also for Greystoke, one of the greatest cinematographers of yeah. all time, truly an amazing genius. Anyway, this was one of his final films, not his best work, obviously. Uh, you're making a movie about a 
baby dinosaur, which is basically E.T. I mean, the whole let's let's face it, the whole thing was kind of cribbed from E.T. Made in 1985, just you know, a few years after E.T. So we were still in the bloodstream. But yeah, that was still going on. And then uh, here are the last three from Kino. These are all from the MGM vaults. Uh, Christopher Reeve in The Aviator with Rosanna Arquette and Jack Warden. Uh, this is a I, I am so partial to this movie. It was directed by George Miller, the other George Miller who did uh, the uh, Man from Snowy River. Uh, who's also Australian. And uh, this is just a wonderful period film with Christopher Reeve and Rosanna Arquette um, in, in Little Adventure, kind of a very Indiana Jones-inspired adventure takes place after World War I. Uh, I. I thought this was very, very enjoyable and fun in every conceivable way. And uh, I, I just, I, I, it just, it, it feels, yes, it feels like knockoff Indiana Jones, but um, I enjoyed it just the same. I, I think it still holds up. And then there's also uh, Lou Ferrigno in Sinbad of the Seven Seas. Ah, yes. Oh, my gosh. This is ridiculous and hilarious at the same time. 1989, uh, Schwarzenegger obviously getting some traction as, uh, as uh, Conan, which was – when was Conan? That was 85? 84, 85. It's Conan, Conan and the Story. Or, yeah. yeah. So, obviously, Lou Ferrigno at that time – I'm sorry, Lou. Forgive me. I know you're partly deaf. I know it's a speech impediment, but I have to do this. Obviously, at that time, uh, Lou said, how come I not getting all of the good roles? Why don't I get any of these part? I want one of these part, too. I'm, I'm tired of playing the Hulk. I played Hulk on TV. I forget to have an Arnold Schwarzenegger role. You know what? He's, the Hulk. His, I, I had to do that. His, I did. Lose Hulk. I know I'm going to get slammed nah, and I have you, to repent. Lose Hulk, just let me say, yeah. uh, uh, was act on television, obviously, yes. Bill Bixby playing the banner. Yeah. Lose Hulk was actually quite good. I've been watching it lately. Yeah. He he plays that character. I mean, you know, because yeah. he doesn't have the the benefit of all the. Uh, yeah. uh, he plays that character with all kinds of empathy. Yeah, and and, and you, you have you have empathy for the character and sympathy. He's very. I have empathy. It's just his face, you know. He don't get to talk. I I have empathy for him. He is wearing tight, tight, tight little <laughs> pants every week. <laughs> Those things must kill. Uh. Unbelievable. Anyway, so he got his shot doing this uh, ridiculous Enzo Castellari-directed Italian-financed thing, Sinbad of the Seven Seas, which is really silly. Uh, But, uh, you know, Castellari is is a guy who made a lot of this cult junk, and uh, it's got a... It's got a cheesy kind of fun to it. It doesn't doesn't really work, but, uh, you know... Yeah, if you if you just don't take it too seriously, you'll have fun with it. That was made for Canon, by the way, released in the U.S. by Canon. And then uh, here is the one. This is the one. You got to get this. This is amazing. I'm kind of surprised that the that uh, MGM UA let this one go um, instead of doing just a crazy, mad, awesome uh, special edition release. But Bravo, Kino, you you killed it with this one. The Thomas Crown Affair, the original from 1968 with Steve McQueen, directed by Norman Jewison. Uh, who was just coming off of uh, his Academy Award win as producer and director of In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. didn't win director, but he did win for producer. And uh, it's a tremendous film. Um, uh, you know, I, I like the remake as well with Pierce Brosnan, but uh, the Steve McQueen, Faye Dunaway version still has just such a cool sense of, of just 1968. You just feel the decade. You feel the music. It's, it's, it's still a really great movie. The Michelle Legrand score is just no. so... So breezy. It's just it just captures the decade and that part of the decade in such a beautiful way, uh, and tons of fantastic extras here, including an audio commentary by Norman Jewison, a commentary with uh, Lem Dobbs and Nick Redman. Nick Redman, one of the principals over at Twilight Time, who has some titles we're going to make mention of in a moment, and a Norman Jewison interview and uh, a uh, 1967 on the feet on the set featurette. So uh, Thomas Crown Affair on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Brilliant! Thank you very much. Excellent. The, the, the Thomas, you know the one um, uh, with uh, who was it? Uh, Rene P- Russo and, and Pierce Brosnan and Pierce. Yeah, uh, uh, you know that one. I really like that movie. I do too. You know, I mean that that Steve McQueen movie over there yeah. is you know it's is a better movie, but I like that Rene. Ru- that I did was too. a good movie. You know, I did I, too. I just remember that because I was kind of I was kind of pissy about it at the time, ninety whatever when yeah. it came out. Uh, but but did I watch it? It turned out to be pretty good. Anyway, uh, Drag Me to Hell. Love this movie. I love this movie. This was kind of like a return to form for Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, because Sam, yeah. actually Sam had done that Bill Pullman movie yeah. uh, with uh, Billy Bob Thornton, which was based a, on the that, book. Based on that book. that book. And it was, was a, simple, a simple plan. 
Oh yes, that's right, that's right. Uh, and uh, and it was and it was just him. It was just a yeah. completely different Sam Raimi. Yeah. But it, I and then of course that that I was that pre or, or that post was the Spider Man. F- that was pre Spider Man. Pre Spider Man. I think films. that's why he did that movie. What was the one about the uh, the, the, the Dark Man? D- no, not Dark Man. That was, was also Liam before. Neeson. That, that was, was the, before, the other book yeah. about the girl and uh, she's taken away from her home. What was that? Uh, Ooh, I don't uh, know if I can remember anyway, that. We'll look it I'll, up. I'll pull it up. You, you do that while I look yeah. at this. Anyway, drag me to hell. Was another one of those moments where Sam Raimi, when of course when we were young, Sam Raimi uses horror guy. Yeah, uh, you know, not to mention Xena Warrior, Princess, yeah. and Hercules, and all kind of stuff. Did you, did you find it? Uh, I'm coming film? up with it. Hold and on. and then Drag Me to Hell, 2009. Man, this is one hellaciously good movie. It's a horror movie. So uh, much fun. about this young woman. She's a loan officer in a bank, and she's in competition for the promotion with the you know. This the is guy. the guy who did. Um, the, the 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 Evil Dead films. This is like back oh, in yeah. his Evil Dead. Two, yeah, yeah, two, the, this, yeah. The Evil Dead Sam Raimi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that 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 kind of as opposed to it's like the Army of Darkness Sam Raimi, uh, uh, and and uh, she refuses a loan to this. I don't know. I guess old lady, but I think she's like a gypsy or something like that. Yeah. And the old lady puts a curse on her, and I'd be goddamn. You I'm know, sorry if this movie isn't uh, isn't I'm just wrong. the creepy. I was thinking movie. of Peter Jackson. I was thinking of Peter Jackson. Oh, Peter, which one are you talking about? I was thinking of a different. I was thinking of the thing he made after the Lord of the Rings films. No, no, Frighteners? no. Uh no, it's uh, it's a different thing. Now, you're not, now you're gonna make now, it look now, that now, way. Now I'm gonna look at it. No, uh, you're right. He did drag me to hell right after the Spider-Man films. He did, he, that that's what it, okay. that was. It. Yeah, and he did, uh, he did Spider-Man one, two, and three, and then he just said, "Screw it, I'm going I gotta, back. And I got to get back to my roots." Making that making that CGI Spider-Man yeah. bounce, bounce around that stream is, yeah. is is killing me. Uh, and, and he just made this wicked uh, stand up uh, all the time horror movie. Uh, that doesn't play nearly enough around Halloween. You should, you, yeah. Halloween, you, should, you think uh, it's you'd so see more. Much, uh, this movie is just straight up fun. Yeah, it is straight up fun. And Sam Raimi is one of the few people who realizes that horror can actually be fun if you just don't take it too seriously. Too seriously, uh, just seriously enough, but not too seriously. There, wait, there, there is a scene in the, there is a scene where she is fighting the old woman in the car. <laughs> it is it is not just terrifying. You will be screaming and laughing at the same time. And you know what? Watch it over again and again and again, and you will realize it's not just funny and and terrifying. It's an incredibly well-made m- yeah. scene. It's incredible. <laughs> it's how a brutal the scene. The filmmaking is fantastic. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, it's covered so beautifully. Yeah. And that fight is just – because it's like a fight for real. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's funny, but it's like this fight for real. Uh, I was thinking of Lovely Bones. Lovely Bones, that, Peter which Jackson, is, which was adapted from uh, yeah. uh, Peter uh, Jackson yeah. made that after King Kong and before The Hobbit. Yeah. So it's it's the right yeah. then a very popular book. That yeah. book uh, um, at the co- at the Earth core, one of those uh, neat old middle sixties uh, Peter Cushing films. Yeah, uh, set during the Victorian period. Yeah, yeah, where all that sort of steampunky kind of stuff is going on. They're gonna get this giant uh, boring machine and drill yeah. down into the ore. And Doug McClure, he must have done a half a dozen of these things. Doug McClure, he was one one in a balloon during set doing this. I don't yeah. know all of those ones. Usually H.G. Wells or something like that. Uh, and what they do is they end up in the middle of the, and there's all these scantily clad sort of like uh, you, you know cave women. Uh, really terrible sort of animatronic again uh, uh, monsters or uh, dinosaurs or whatever they are. I, I love these movies. They're always so much fun. Uh, this one uh, has a couple of different interviews on it, including an, an audio commentary with the director, Kevin O'Connor. Uh, and of course, the great Peter Cushing is in this movie. So, you know, you can't really go wrong with anything like that. We and and we've got uh, four terrific ones from Twilight Time. Uh, the first, I, I, I'm just I'm always so impressed with that Twilight Time. The stuff that they managed to, to kind of pluck out from the studio archives uh, from 20th Century Fox in 1946 is Dragon Wick, uh, with uh, which is just a, such a cool film. From to, to is fine. It was directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. It was his directing debut. And, um, you know, Joseph Mankiewicz, of course, one of uh, only two people ever to win back-to-back directing mm-hmm. Oscars, uh, did All About Eve and, you know, Letter to Three Wives. And um, this is really, really a, 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 a fun gothic period uh, suspenser. Um, really, really great mood, perfect studio film from the time, and one of the few kind of studio legit films that Vincent Price ever made. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Price and uh, Gene Tierney are both just absolutely terrific in this. Vincent Price just chews up the scenery. Uh, Dragonwick, the, of the title, is this big estate, and these, all, these movies all took place on big estates, whether it was, you know, Rebecca or uh, Jane Eyre. There's always some big spooky castle or big spooky estate as a, as a backdrop of this. And... Uh, 
it really borrows a lot from those, but it is uh, it is still really, really, really fun. So if you love all that gothic stuff from the 19, uh, 1940s, 1930s, 1940s especially, Joseph Mankiewicz's debut film, uh, Dragon Wick. And then we also have My Cousin Rachel, which is uh, such a wonderful movie. Uh, My Cousin Rachel was made in 1952, still feels like a film from the 1940s. Um, this is based on the uh, Daphne du Maurier novel, uh, written by the great Nunnally Johnson and uh, yeah. directed by Henry Coster, features an incredible performance by Olivia de Havilland. Uh, if you know the novel, you know that this is just one of those all-time great uh, it's again, it's a gothic romance, but it's just it's one of those all-time great parts for an actress. And uh, this was the first film in Hollywood that Richard Burton did, and uh, he really takes he just he he gets eaten alive by Olivia De Havilland. But he's good, he's still good. But it's it's her movie through and through, and it is absolutely terrific. And I would put this right up there with uh, something like Rebecca, which I just adore. Uh, moving a little bit more modern, we have Husbands and Wives by Woody Allen. Uh, Twilight Time continues to release all the TriStar stuff that uh, Woody Allen had uh, had accumulated and uh, doing a wonderful job of it. Blu-ray, nice Blu-ray transfer. Great performances here. You know, this is Woody Allen in the early 90s. Still feels a little bit like the uh, the 80s. Um, I think that film's just absolutely was brilliant. Was this the last film he made with Mia before everything yes, went? Yes, before com- everything went. As a matter of fact, that film was because in theaters uh, while, while it was happening. It was all that happening. was that's and what we I was going to say. Pollock and all of that, and all kinds of associations. I were being made. because there are things that people started to read into this movie yes, when yes. all that blew up. I was yeah. one of those people. Yeah, <laughs> I remember you and I had just kind of started yeah. up at that time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so for that reason alone, you may want to watch this. It is a, uh, it is, it, it's got all kinds of interesting stuff dovetailing. He was, he was. Not to sleep- mention those performances. I mean, he and you know, Sun Yi were having an affair while they were. While shooting. they were. Oh shooting. my word. Yeah. Anyway, husbands and wives. Woody Allen from 1992. Uh, also, let's not overlook uh, Judy Davis and yeah. Blythe Danner, who are tremendous in this. Liam Neeson was in this. I've forgotten that he was in that. I know. Uh, yeah. It's amazing the people you Daniel forget are in these movies. Was in that movie. And then uh, a, a last one from Twilight Time, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Ah, uh, they're all Twilight Time keeps releasing Paul Mazursky movies too, yeah. and God bless him and we thank you for Paul it. We honored Paul at LAFCA. We did a couple, a couple of uh, five. I four, nominated, you nominated him. Ray yeah. and I, yeah. Ray and I, and uh, and Len Clady. I'll put that name up there. And uh, Paul Mazursky has since passed away, but his movies were so iconic. And Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is oftentimes just referred to as, oh, the 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 swapper movie. Yeah. You know, it's more than that. More, it's so much more sophisticated it's, than that. It's yeah. a, you know, 1969, it captures the era and certainly, you know, the, 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 the wife swapping concept that was sort of a, a, a thing among but a certain it, upper it, middle it, class. It undermines all that stuff. It's just Mazursky. With so, reality. Oh, he's so smart and such a one of the all-time great screenplays produced by Larry Tucker, his longtime partner. And let us not forget, forget one of the all-time iconic scores from Quincy Jones. Yeah. Absolutely terrific. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice on Blu-ray with a lot of great extras, including an audio commentary from Mazursky and uh, Robert Culp and Elliot Gould and Diane Cannon. Obviously, the one missing there is uh, Natalie Wood, who uh, whose yeah. death is now getting yeah. put on the front pages again. Yeah. Now that the, the, the is a person of interest, yeah. but uh, he just always to, was really. Yeah, and uh, then Julie Kirgo and Nick Redman, again, uh, principal of Twilight Time, they do another audio commentary as well. It's just ter- it's just tremendous. I wanted to talk about these two milestone uh, films, films of milestone. Uh, the Dumb Girl of Portici and yeah. Shoes, ni- both 1916. Both uh, principally Lois Weber films, although her husband at the time, Philip Smalley, uh, worked on The Dumb Girl. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lois Weber, of course, being one of the premier uh, in uh, preeminent female filmmakers of the early days of cinema. Yep. Uh, and Milestone all, has been really pushing her career in a it, great way, and I, I'm just so glad they it's have. So, uh, Lois Weber, uh, this, this, she, she made a wonderful short. This is how... This is how Forward thinking uh, and how uh, uh, what a social activist she was, a feminist at the time, started her own studio, all of that, uh, and was as famous. People forget she was as famous, as known a filmmaking person yep. as D.W. was in 1915. Uh, that you still, so so it's not like a, it's not a thing of yeah. where oh you know, no no she was worldwide famous person. Millions and millions of people watch these films. Uh, the Cabbage Patch Fairy is a wonderful old film. You can find it on YouTube. It's one of her very, very early films. It might be yep. her first film. But this is the one thing that's wonderfully daring about that little short film. You got Lois wandering around in this scene, 
butt-ass naked yes. playing a fairy in like 19, I don't even know what it is, like because that's, be, that's actually before this might be about, about 1915, 1914 or so. In any case, both of these films are absolutely extraordinary films beyond the fact that they happen to have been made principally by a woman, Lois Weber. And of course, as we uh, sort of wander still through this sort of Me Too moment, Oscar's, Oscar is less male than it used to be. We talked about the Academy Award nominations uh, uh, yeah. there, you know, and, 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 and how those are actually shaped up in a very interesting way. Um, and the re one of the reasons why that is so relevant, because if you go back to the beginning of cinema, there women are and were doing all sorts of extraordinary work back at the beginning of cinema. And, you know, why that went away. And, and, and in case, you have several bonus features um, on the, uh, the dumb girl of yeah. Pachichi here. You have uh, a couple of sh uh, features, the immortal swan, Anna P uh, Pilova, who, who, of course, is in this film. Yeah. Uh, footage that had been lost of the great ballerina. Uh, so, you know, this is just extraordinary stuff for a whole bunch of reasons, and you should definitely get it from Milestone, Shoes, and The Dumb Girl of Pochichi, mostly by Lois Weber. Yes. Lois Weber, so, so, such an important figure, and I'm so glad she's being rediscovered. Uh, and then uh, the last few here on the, uh, the movie front before we uh, probably wrap up a little bit on television. I'll see if we can get into some foreign stuff. Um, a couple from Warner Archive on Blu-ray. Uh, the Hanging Tree and The Flight of Dragons. The, the Flight of Dragons is an animated film, uh, which is a really interesting thing to show up on, uh, on Blu-ray from oh, Warner Archives. Uh, I, w I never would have expected this, but I'm glad it does because this comes from Rankin-Bass. And I, of course, uh, am a huge Rankin-Bass fan, as anybody knows. Obviously, all of their uh, all of their uh, stop motion stuff, their soup, their their um, the, the holiday yeah. special, yeah. Santa yeah. Claus coming to town, and Little Drummer Boy, and all that stuff, um, and you know Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Uh, but they did a lot of uh, 2D animation as well, like Frosty the Snowman, and and various other things. And uh, they did have some really interesting feature work during a moment. Um, and this is one of them. Uh, the Flight of Dragons is really, really probably some of their best hand animation, their best cell animation, and it's based on a, uh, a book by Peter Dickinson and um, given a really wonderful, wonderful feature treatment here, and it may also be the, the best screenplay ever written by Romeo Muller, who wrote everything for them. Mm. Romeo Muller, fascinating guy, just a you know, big, heavy set, um, very talented writer who would just crank out whatever they wanted him to crank out, and he basically was the in-shop screenwriter for Rankin-Bass. Does a wonderful, wonderful job here. Uh, you know, a lot of people were like, "Well, can he write anything that's not forty minutes long? That not, you know, <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town or Rudolph or you know the holiday specials? Can he write a feature? Can he? And he does. He does a wonderful job, and he does a wonderful adaptation and some great voice work here. Uh, Victor Buono and James Earl Jones and Harry Morgan and John Ritter. It's just. It's really, really wonderful. Uh, Larry Storch, it's it just, you know, you, you hear the voices and you suddenly, it takes you back, and uh, it's good stuff. The, uh, the Hanging Tree is, uh, is also a, a yeah. wonderful rediscovery. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of one of those, may, might be sort of the first quote-unquote revisionist Western. Uh, uh, you know, we had the sort of celebratory Westerns for many years, and yeah. Unforgiven, and a lot of those early Clint Eastwood films are considered revisionist westerns but uh you you kind of do have to go to the the hanging tree in 1959 really to find the genre of being a little bit more angry and bitter uh this is an aging and a very aging well gary cooper maria shell uh and carl malden who just shows up in everything great then takes place uh not too long after the uh, the civil war in a montana gold camp and um it's it, it is of course, where gold is involved, you know that there will be, uh, you know, like in the treasure of Sierra Madre, all of the worst inclinations of human beings will be uh, will be unveiled by their greed and their their their, their avarice and everything else. Um, it, but this is this this goes into some interesting sideways places too. You know, you have uh, a very young George C. Scott who shows up here as a preacher. Um, Maria Schell, you know, rep kind of represents every immigrant who ever came to America to yeah. struggle for a future that that, that was uncertain. And um, it's, it's the, the symbolism here of, of everything related to humanity and, and to Americanism in particular is really quite powerful. So Daniel Dave's the sort of principal director on that. But, yeah, who, but, did, who did just programmers before this. Well, yeah, and, and, 
and actually, Carl Malden had some did some work on this film, and and, and I forget who in, who ended up finishing it, but yeah. but the direction of the film was 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 truncated. Uh, yeah, kind of like true. Gone with the Wind. You know, like everybody directed a scene or two. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's one, true. One that's true. Kind of things, yeah. You know? uh, uh, what are we? You gonna finish up yeah, over let there? Me, let me just you, finish you, off. You, real you quickly. do old TV, and I'll come on and do a little new TV. Uh, so anyway, this is well, this kind of kind of TV. Uh, there's TV and movie crossover yeah. here, so it's appropriate. Uh, this is from the uh, Mill Creek Hollywood Profiles line, which is new, where they are uh, putting together compilations of movies and shorts and documentaries and TV appearances for certain personalities. Uh, we've got the Shirley Temple collection and the Lucille Ball collection here. Uh, both of them just kind of loaded up with stuff, and it's a little bit haphazard. Um, you know, like, for example, Shirley Temple has ten short films and two features and then two documentaries and a co- television commercial. It's sort of like, well, okay, it, you know, if, if you, I mean, we, if you have The Little Princess, you probably don't need to necessarily get this because the rest of it isn't essential. But if you don't, it's not a bad way to sort of start your collection. Uh, the Lucille Ball set is uh, ten television episodes of The Lucy Show combined with um, a couple of documentaries, some television commercials, and four movies, including um, Her Husband's Affairs and Miss Grant Takes Richmond. And it's, uh, it is, again, a little bit haphazard, but it's a nice overview if you are a fan of the stars. Indeed, 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 indeed. Uh, I got a little new TV over here. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Broad City, season four. I got to tell you, I'm a yeah. big fan of Broad City. Yeah. Alana Glazer in particular. I'm just, I have, and I have no idea why. I fell into this show just sort of arbitrarily, you know, one of those situations where uh, I need to watch something. What's this? Uh, two, two, two wacky chicks in New York roaming around being lewd. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, and you, and you watch it, it just turns out to be this actually very, very, you know, wild and funny show, but a, but a kind of a thoughtful show that had this arc over seasons. So, like, by the time we get to season four, still the same show, the kind of core of it is all still the same, but the, the, the ladies have, you know, grown a little and learned a little, and, and there's a little poignancy in the scene here or there, and then they get back to doing a bunch of crazy crap. Uh, and I, and I, and I got to tell you, I just like this show a lot, um, Abby and Alana. And 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 frankly, particular Alana, uh, a lot of a, a lot of great, a lot of great, very Jewy jokes in in, in, in this show because the girls are both Jewish and this whole thing, you know, it's just fabulous and uh, and it harkens back to a comedy of old uh, that you would see uh, in, in here and back in the old days when they weren't afraid afraid to tell jokes like that. Anyway, this has over an hour worth of special features. It's uh, Comedy Central from Comedy Central. Neat, 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 neat stuff. The Deuce, David Simon's show. Uh, and George Pelicanus, uh, who, who of course gave us the wire and all of that. So here, here they they have given us uh, the first complete season of the Deuce with James Franco and Maggie Gyllenhaal, right? Yeah. Uh, James Franco playing like himself, you know, the two characters, uh, you know, a character, the character's brother, yeah. uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, the sort of matron of this sort of like uh, up and coming little porn establishment. As the whole porn scene is just beginning to pop off. In New York, and that sort of early. early. The, you know what I don't like about this show? It is mostly humorless. Yeah. Uh, it's very. It's. I mean, this, these are the producers of The yeah. Wire, so you know what are you going to expect? But man, uh, they don't seem to understand that some of these people were doing it just for fun and money. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, it really wasn't all that dark, you know. No. And uh, and it would, you probably don't want to do this the rest of my life. But they just, you know, there's just no 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 humor True. in this show. Yeah. Uh, in, in the whole scene, they just try. They, they play nothing but the sort of edgy thing. So you know. But anyway, it's a big popular show, and a lot of people like it. HBO miniseries there. Uh, Penny Dreadful is a, is a is a series that I thoroughly thoroughly loved. It was only three seasons. Uh, reconception of the whole sort of Penny Dreadful thing. So you've got Frankenstein, uh, Dr. Frankenstein and the monster that he creates. You've got uh, uh, the Wolfman. Uh, it's it sort of reconstructed George Hot- Hartnett playing him in a very particular sort of interesting way. Timothy Dalton. This is all set during the, uh, set during the Victorian period. Uh, and, and, and a number of other very interesting things going on, including vampires and witches and... Absolutely extraordinary action scenes and these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sets. The writing, breathtaking. The score, breathtaking. And my girl, Eva Green, yeah. comes into this series in that last season yeah. and just walks away with the whole damn show. 
you know, and not that, not that not that everybody isn't great, but yeah. she just you know she just she comes because she well, first yeah. of all she's Ava Green, yeah, uh, uh, and she is daring and uh, uh, just just uh, uh, audacious, and it's just it, it was a really neat series. You know what I like the most about it? Mm. It ended after three, and it stuck the landing. It knew where it was That's going because love. it knew it was going to end, and it wrapped. I didn't really like the third season, what was going mm. on in it, but when it realized we're not coming back. It figured itself out, and it stuck the landing and ended really, really well. Neat stuff. Penny Dreadful. Complete series. And we will wrap out this week with uh, Time Life's release of the Jackie Gleason Show in color. Now, this is what's really interesting to me. Jackie Glee- the Jackie Gleason Show aired in color for four years, from 1966 to 1970. Ah. And We're talking I- about the Big Variety Show. The Big Variety Show. Yeah. Which also featured Honeymooners sketches. Yeah. You know, the Honeymooners was from the 50s, yeah. but he also kind of leaned into the uh, you know the Jack Gleason show as yeah. well and made it a part of that. And I, I remember watching the show as a kid. Oh, me too. With my parents. With the dancers, with the overhead camera and all but that But we watched it in black and white on a black and white TV. Ah. I have never seen this show before You in never color. knew it was in color. I never knew it was in color. And boy, is it great in color. It's like watching it all over again. Milton Berle and the guest stars, uh, you know, Red Buttons and Car- a young Carlin, a young Nipsey Russell. <laughs> uh, it's just Frankie Avalon. It's just, um, it's amazing. It really is. It's a lot of fun. And and um, and those honeymoon sketches, honeymooner sketches are terrific. Yeah. They're great. So uh, this was just this is so refreshing. I uh, this and these these are episodes that have never been released before. So you know I haven't seen some of this stuff since I was a kid, and it's yeah. like it's amazing. The variety. So they tried to bring it back a couple of years ago. They did that thing with. Uh, yeah. Oh, what's your what's your name for Sarah Night Live? Yeah. The variety show. No. Post Carol Burnett. No. We're done. All right. So the Jackie Gleason Show in color. You definitely want to pick this up. Let's hope a lot more of these come out. I hope Time Life really, really goes to goes to bat for this show. All right. With that, we are done. And we will see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.